Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me in the Betters Box. It's the BangTheBook.com's MLB betting podcast for Thursday, July 23rd. I am your host, Adam Burke. This and every edition of the Betters Box presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the Sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game. Until you bet it. Happy opening day, everybody. Two games today, Yankees, Nationals, Giants, and Dodgers. Everybody else gets underway on Friday, weather permitting, of course. But great to have Major League Baseball back here. Great to have my daily MLB picks and tips piece back as well. Got that up for today over at bangthebook.com with my thoughts on Yankees, Nationals, as well as Giants and Dodgers. Nothing I totally love for today. One lean that did make the cut in the article with it being opening day. I'll talk about that one a little bit later on here on today's show. Still covering UFC, golf, and NASCAR over at the website. I also did a lot of MLB futures stuff this week with ALNL Cy Young, ALNL MVP, most home runs. I didn't touch the pennant futures, which is probably a good thing, which I'll talk about here in a couple of minutes. But some thoughts on those individual player futures posted over there. At the website, the golf tournament is off and running, but if you want to check that out and look for some guys to keep an eye on over the weekend, you can certainly do that. NASCAR is tonight at Kansas Speedway, the Superstart Batteries 400. Talked about that on Tuesday's edition of the podcast with Brian Blessing. Also wrote about that over at bangthebook.com. And one more Fight Island card coming up here on Saturday for the UFC. Good main event, Darren Till, Robert Whitaker. Wrote about that one over at bangthebook.com as well. NBA and NHL stuff coming here very, very soon. And the full shows of Bang the Book Radio will return sometime in August. I'm not exactly sure what that timeline is going to look like as of yet. Obviously, things a little bit touch and go with uh, you know not knowing what's going to happen with college football and the NFL. Thought about bringing them back here for NBA and NHL, at least in a little bit more of a modified format. Have not decided to make that move as of yet, but we will see how things kind of progress here once we head on into the month of August. So like I said, happy opening day to everybody out there. The typical format for the betters box, for those that are new to the show or those that maybe haven't listened in a while, usually I start with the Beyond the Box score segment. I'll look at a few series that just completed, take some statistical deep dives, kind of look at situations where Maybe starting pitchers got a little bit lucky or a little bit unlucky, all those types of things. Then I go into the down the line segment, take a look at how the lines moved out there in the marketplace for the games that were just recently completed. Usually I give you a pick for that night's games, and I do have one for tonight here with opening day. And I usually preview the weekend ahead as well. And, you know, obviously I I can't really do all of those things here on today's show. The lines have been up for a few days out there. Uh, for Thursday and Friday's games. Admittedly, I didn't look at them up until this morning, just kind of been working on some different stuff here. Uh, But I will talk about those line movements when we get to Monday's show and then in subsequent editions of the betters box as well. Uh, Something else I want to mention here real quickly is that, look, you know, uh, this is going to be a very unique MLB season in a lot of different respects. The handicapping process is going to be A little bit different probably for me. For those that have listened to the show, for those that have read my work, 
you know that I'm very, very in tune with the analytics, the advanced statistics side of Major League Baseball, more commonly known as sabermetrics. The thing about sabermetrics is that in a lot of cases, you need sample size for those to be significant. There are some metrics that do stabilize at smaller sample sizes, and I'll touch on those on today's show and probably use those a lot in my handicapping. But areas of expected regression just may not come to fruition with the low number of games, the low number of starts, all that type of thing here for this upcoming season. So I am a little bit uncertain. I'm kind of uh, trying to find my sea legs a little bit here with this 60-game sprint. I'll be doing the picks and tips article, so I'll be able to talk my way through it. I'll be doing this podcast for the next little while as well. But, you know, just as a heads up here, I mean, this is a, a different kind of animal for me. This is this is not the type of season where I would feel extremely comfortable just because by the time things start to stabilize, the season's over. And then you're going to get into the playoffs, which, you know, small size, small sample size tournament of variance with that. So, again, going to work through a lot of different things here for this Major League Baseball season. Will be different. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a little bit better for me. Um, not overanalyzing everything that's out there, but just wanted to throw that out there for you that, you know, because I do so many things from a sabermetric standpoint, this type of format is a little bit trickier for my handicapping style. So we'll see how it all plays out here uh, in this high-variance environment. As I mentioned, picks and tips articles available over at bangthebook.com. Just some quick general thoughts here on those two games for tonight. Yankees and Nationals, you've got Garrett Cole, you've got Max Scherzer. Got a very detailed write-up in that article over at the website. Total 7.5 here for this game. And I guess I'll go ahead and start by throwing out the pick that I kind of like over 7.5 a, a little bit here in this Yankees-Nationals game. This is something I've kind of wrestled with over the last few days here is that, you know, we didn't get that traditional spring training. The teams were out at their spring training facilities for about three and a half, four weeks before everything got shut down from coronavirus. So you had the ramp up to the season where everybody was kind of on track as usual. Then you get three and a half months, four months where basically nothing happens. Then everybody reconvenes at the summer camps and plays intra-squad games and a handful of exhibition games against local opponents, stuff like that. And what happens here is that the pitchers may not be ready. We've seen a lot of stone-cold overs in a lot of these exhibition games here. Could be the baseball, could be the bad command for the pitchers, could be guys just working on different things. For example, Mike Fultonevich in his last tune-up start for the Braves didn't throw a single fastball. It was all sliders and curveballs trying to work on those pitches. He didn't pitch very well, didn't throw enough good versions of those two pitches. So those things happen in spring training in these exhibition games. But I wonder where the pitchers kind of stand right now. I think the hitters, because it's a lot of read and react type of stuff, the hitters may be ahead of the pitchers at this point in time. So I think 7.5 is a pretty low total for that Yankees-Nationals game. The ball tends to carry very well at Nationals Park in the summertime. It's a very good park for left-handed batters. Right-handed batters do pretty well. Also, uh, I know you've got Cole and Scherzer. I know you've got the great Yankees bullpen, some top-heavy guys in the Nationals bullpen. But as I sort of look at that game, I just think seven and a half, a little bit too low of a total for that one. And again, we'll have to see how this plays out. We'll have to see how the baseball is performing. We'll have to see how the pitchers 
and the hitters have adjusted to this quick ramp up for the season. You know, for pitchers, they can only throw a couple times a week. Hitters can swing every day. So I would think that hitters are probably a little bit ahead of the game right now than the pitchers are. You know, I saw a lot of poor command in the Indians-Pirates game that I watched. Like there were six or seven home runs hit in that game. Again, just one game, a very small look at what's going on with these inter-squad games and these exhibition games. But again, my thought process would suggest to me that hitters are probably ahead of the pitchers at this point in time. So I'm looking at the over seven and a half there in Yankees and Nationals. Giants and Dodgers, look, I mean, the, the Dodgers on paper are a perfect team. The lineup is deep. They're versatile. They're flexible. The starting staff is exceptional. They've got all kinds of arms in the bullpen. And now the fact that Blake Trainin looks like he may be back on track with that one seam fastball. He runs out there at 99 and just the, the elite stuff that he has. The Dodgers have a pretty good bullpen too. They are a massive favorite here in the minus 285 range for their game against the Giants. Total of eight for that one. That's probably a total that's a little bit low as well, I would think. Uh, Johnny Cueto makes his first start since early 2019, coming back from Tommy John surgery. He's not throwing to Buster Posey. Gabe Kapler is not his manager. The Giants lineup just doesn't look very good. The Dodgers are deserving of that very big favorite role. Some people will probably play the Giants because they like to play underdogs early on in the process. I'm not that kind of guy. The Dodgers price may actually be a little bit light in some respects. But again, that may be one where you kind of look towards the total a little bit and say, well, you've got this great Dodgers offense going up against Cueto. Obviously some jitters for him in his first start back. The Giants bullpen is not at all what it looked like last year. So just kind of some thoughts I thought uh, I scribbled together over at the website in that Picks and Tips article. Then also some thoughts here on today's show. And I won't do this all the time, but you know, with this being opening day and, and not a whole lot of results to talk about to this point, figured it's a good opportunity to talk about those two standalone games, kind of walk you through the process that I go through when handicapping the card on a daily basis. Got some more general thoughts for you here as we ramp up for the start of the season. You know, it's opening day, and, and the Blue Jays don't even know where they're playing yet. The most recent rumor that I saw is that it could be Nationals Park. And, you know, realistically speaking, this kind of makes sense. The, the state of Pennsylvania, the city of Pittsburgh, they said that they didn't want teams coming from the East Coast into their state. They didn't want to have more people coming in and out. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and give you my thoughts on, on how Pennsylvania handled that whole situation. But what I am going to say is that this may be a blessing in disguise for the Blue Jays. When you look at the composition of their lineup, it's really predicated on a lot of right-handed power. Bo Bichette, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Vladdy Jr., Randall Grichik, Teoscar Hernandez. A lot of right-handed power has to carry the load for this Blue Jays offense. PNC Park really suppresses right-handed power. As it is, the ball doesn't carry particularly well in Pittsburgh the left field side of the ballpark is enclosed. It does sit down a little bit. So PNC Park is not a good park for right-handed power at all whatsoever. So this is actually a blessing in disguise, I think, for the Blue Jays, even if they have to play all of their games on the road or a lot of their games on the road, something like that. PNC Park would have been a bad offensive environment for them 
for the composition of their lineup and of their roster. So I think this actually helps them. Now, if it winds up being Nationals Park and the Blue Jays don't play a quote-unquote home game until next week, that's an even better hitter's park for left-handed batters than Rogers Center and pretty comparable for right-handed batters. And Rogers Center is a pretty good offensive environment. So I do think that if it winds up being Nationals Park, and who knows, this may even be announced here at some point while I'm doing today's show, then you know this is one of those situations to me where I think the Blue Jays do catch a little bit of a break. It could be a little bit of a benefit for them. So that is something you want to factor in to your handicapping process here a little bit in the sense that you know they may end up being in an even more favorable situation than they would have been otherwise, at least on the offensive side. Now, again, this could impact their pitching staff in a negative way as well. But if it winds up being Nationals Park, I think you're looking at a lot of overs in Blue Jays games here for this season, whereas at PNC, it would have been a little bit more difficult for their offense to have success. But can we talk about how ludicrous this situation is that we're, you know, eight hours away from opening day and the Blue Jays don't know where they're going to play? And yet, it's still not as ludicrous as the fact that yesterday, playoff expansion suddenly became a major talking point for Major League Baseball. The idea that they would expand the playoffs from 10 teams to 16 teams. And to talk about this, or for at least to come out publicly on the eve of the start of the season, is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Now, I know Major League Baseball is coming back, and I know they're coming back faster than any of the other pro sports, and maybe Rob Manfred, the players, the owners, maybe they all need to be applauded for that. The idea that you could fundamentally change the format of the playoffs the day before the the day of the start of the season, it boggles my mind. And Rob Manfred has been a bad commissioner since the jump. He's focused on the wrong things. He's been very weak on the sign stealing problems that Major League Baseball has, specifically with what happened with the Astros as well as the Red Sox. It has not been a good look for Rob Manfred, and this isn't a good look either. And I understand the thought process here. The owners want more playoff money. They want more games in the postseason. They want more TV money. They want to try to placate the networks because, you know, all of these sports are dealing with this issue now where they're not able to fulfill the TV contracts. So they're having some beef with the networks and all that type of thing. Also, no attendance. They're trying to recoup some of the attendance losses by making some more playoff money. Also, players are not paid for the playoffs. Players get a team share, win or lose, everybody gets the same amount. So this is an opportunity for the owners to get more games without having to pay out any more money, except for travel costs and and some of those other things. So that's why this has become a thing now at this point in time. Now, I feel bad for people that have bet futures, pennant futures, World Series futures. This has a serious impact on all of those things. This is going, more teams in the field We'll spread everything out here. Variance in small sample sizes is a real thing. If we're talking about three-game series and five-game series, even seven-game series, anything can happen. A lot of things can happen in those small sample size formats, which has kind of been you know the talking point for everybody with this 60-game sprint here. 
But the idea of expanding the playoffs, I mean, it is not that far out of the realm of possibility over the course of the regular season for the Tigers to win two out of three over the Twins or over the Yankees or over the Astros, something like that. Basically, the best way I could sum it up is that shit happens. You know, the Marlins swept some teams they shouldn't have last year. You know, the Giants won series against teams that they shouldn't have beaten. A three-game series, if you have 16 teams in the playoffs, more than half of the league, mind you, if you have 16 teams in the playoffs, you know teams with losing records are making the playoffs. I mean, that's a given. That is a fact. And they're going to go into a three-game series or a five-game series and beat a better team. It's just going to happen. So for those people that you know dug into the pennant futures or the World Series futures, maybe you got some good prices. If you took teams like you know say the Blue Jays uh, or you know say the Rockies or the Rangers or somebody like that, you took one of those teams that you know thirty to one, forty to one, fifty to one, something like that. That's great for you because now their chances of making the playoffs are greatly increased. But if you took any of the teams that are chalkier. In nature, if you took the favorites, the Yankees and the Dodgers, if you took the Astros or, you know, you took, um, you know, the Braves, somebody like that. Yeah, their chances of making the playoffs are greatly increased now, because even if they struggle and stumble a little bit, 16 teams are going to make it. That means a lot of teams that are pretty good are going to make it. But now all of the sudden, they're going to have to probably play an extra playoff series. Or, at the very least, play additional games against a team that really has no business being in the playoffs. A team that they have no business running the possibility of losing to. So, if you played some of those chalkier numbers, this is not great for you. If you played some of those bigger numbers, you're excited. Because you may have a 50-1 to shot that now increased its you know probability of making the playoffs by 10%. I mean, that's substantial. That's a big edge for you. So, that's nice. But again, we don't know how many teams are going to make it. I haven't looked to see how much the markets have adjusted to this as of yet. But man, I mean, this is crazy. And from a regular season betting impact standpoint, it's going to keep teams interested longer. You know, I've kind of talked about this a little bit, maybe in passing more than I should have. But there will be teams that have different philosophies going into the season. There will be teams that will try to win at the outset. And if things aren't going well, they fall behind the pack they'll switch gears and go to some of those prospects. Well, maybe those prospects now wind up playing in a playoff push. On the other hand, maybe some of those teams don't make those decisions as quickly because they want to try and make the playoffs because a 16-team tournament of variance is a lot different than a 10-team tournament of variance. So, you know, this is going to be... I can't believe that on the eve of the season, this went public. And maybe this is something that they've been talking about for a while. But, I mean, this is just mind-numbing. It's staggering. It's going to have an impact on literally everything. And they're not worried about betters. I mean, if they were worried about betters, we would have had legalized sports betting in the U.S. a lot earlier than we did. But this is something that can have a substantial impact in a lot of different ways here. And I just, man, you know, look, say what you will about the pandemic. Say what you will about mask mandates and you know death rates and IFRs and, and all those kinds of things. but the idea of heading more games in a pandemic, it's a pretty interesting move on, on the part of Major League Baseball. It's a little bit surprising, to say the least. I mean, I guess you know, the NHL did that with the expanded playoffs and the NBA doing that 
with the eight-game regular season and everything. Trying to milk as much money out of this as possible, and, and I understand that, but the logistics of all of this all of the sudden now become really, really interesting for Major League Baseball. And again, like I said, the fact that you go from 10 teams to 16 teams from a third of the league to more than half of the league is very significant, very substantial, will have a massive impact on the futures market. And like I said, probably on the philosophies and the mindsets of these teams as the regular season goes along. Something I wanted to do here on today's show, I want to recap some of the statistics that I like to use in handicapping, because whether you listen just to this show or you read the article or you do both, you're going to find me talking about a lot of these statistics that are out there. Some of them you know, some of them you may not know. So I want to talk about them a little bit here on today's podcast, just to either be a refresher for you or kind of introduce some of these topics to you as we get geared up for the season here. I will tell you this. I don't like ERA. I hate sacrifice bunts. I don't give a shit about batting average. If you like traditional statistics, either this isn't the podcast for you or you're going to learn some new things. I think it's very important to always be learning new things. A couple of years ago, I really dug into the stat cast data, exit velocity, barrel percentage, launch angles, all those types of things to sort of broaden my horizons a little bit and also try to find some new edges out there in the betting market. If that's something you're interested in, then take the time to try and understand these advanced metrics. I know that a lot of them can be relatively difficult concepts. In a lot of instances, they're either better versions of those traditional statistics, or they're a better way of quantifying what your eyes can see. Things like defensive metrics, for example, you may say, man, that guy's a really bad outfielder. You know, he, he just, he doesn't get to the balls that he should. You know, it doesn't seem like he catches balls that other fielders do. And in a lot of instances, your eyes are not deceiving you. Your eyes are not lying to you. What the advanced metrics do, however, is they quantify the impact of what you are seeing. If you watch Byron Buxton and you go, man, that guy gets to a lot more balls than my center fielder does, not only is that a correct statement in most cases, but you're also going to be able to see what impact that has on an individual statistical level and also what impact that may have for the Minnesota Twins. You'll be able to look at a stat like defensive runs saved, which is a plus-minus system based on balls that you know are hit in a certain area and whether or not they're usually caught or if they usually fall. If you've got an outfielder with a low defensive run save number in the, or in the negatives, that's not good. He's not catching balls that other fielders get to. If you've got guys with a high defensive run save number or on a team level, a team that has a high defensive run save number, like the Diamondbacks from last year, they are converting a very high percentage of batted balls into outs. That is a good thing if you want to bet on the Diamondbacks. If you want to bet against the Diamondbacks, that's something that you're going up against. So a lot of these advanced metrics quantify what the eyes can see. They add more context. They add a value to what you are seeing, or they add a better valuation than the more traditional statistics that are out there. For one example, I love WOBA, weighted on base average, lowercase w, capital O-B-A. WOBA is weighted on base average. It is a modified, more accurate, better version of on-base percentage. 
think back to the Moneyball generation, which I guess we're, you know, you could say we're kind of still in. But you think back to that great Michael Lewis book, and you think back to the movie, and you think back to what Oakland was focusing on. It wasn't about batting average. It was about on-base percentage. Why was it about on-base percentage? Because it means you're not making outs. Most guys will hit between, you know, 270 and 290. So they're getting a hit 29% of the time. But what on-base percentage focuses on is how often you reach base, the inclusion of walks. And that's more like, you know, 31, 32, 33% of the time. That's a better metric to evaluate how a hitter is performing. Because batted balls are subject to variance. They get fielded or they don't. A walk is always a base runner. So that's why Oakland tried to look at guys that drew a lot of walks, were patient hitters at the plate, guys that may have been a little bit undervalued because they didn't hit for those lofty averages, but were just as productive, if not more productive, in terms of getting on base. So on base percentage was the start. A lot of people kind of transitioned from batting average into on base percentage. Well, with on-base percentage, one of the inherent problems is that a walk counts the same as a single, which is not true because singles can advance runners more often than they advance uh, on walks. Doubles count the same as walks with on-base percentage. That's also not true. Home runs count the same as singles with on-base percentage. That's also not true. So what weighted on-base average does is it takes these positive outcomes and weights them based on their run values, to the point where a double does count for more than a walk. A home run does count for more than a triple. So that's why I like weighted on base average. It's a better indicator of the types of ways that a hitter is reaching base. It's a better metric. It's a more detailed, more accurate valuation than on base percentage. So I love a stat like WOBA. And it sounds confusing, and it sounds like a lot. Oh, run values and and this and that. Oh, an acronym that, you know, I don't know, I've never heard of. That's all true, but you don't have to figure out how to calculate it. You just have to know how to interpret it and know how to interpret what it means. Somebody else does the calculation for you. They've got algorithms and spreadsheets and stuff like that that does all that hard work for you. All you have to know is how to interpret WOBA, what it means, what its value is, why it matters in a betting context. You know, you may have two teams that have 320 on base percentages, but one might have a 335 WOBA and one might have a 323 WOBA. What's the difference? The difference is that team that has the higher WOBA hits for more power. So all things equal, if two teams are getting on base 32% of the time, But one team has a much higher WOBA. Those two offenses are not equal. One is better than the other because the other lineup hits for more power. So WOBA is a better version of on-base percentage. And when you think about the traditional metrics, they are pretty limited. ERA is a bad metric, in my opinion. ERA is based on circumstance. It's based on context. Who's on base? When do hits happen? You know, if you give up a single with nobody on, it doesn't really matter. If you give up a single with a runner on second, it matters because that's a run. ERA doesn't account for things like that. It's subject to high variance. Defense plays a big role. So when it comes to pitchers, I prefer to look at FIP, 
outfielder independent pitching. What FIP is, is a pitcher pitcher run metric based on strikeouts, walks, home runs, and hit by pitches. It measures what pitchers can quote-unquote control. Now, with that being said, in my adaptations with sabermetrics, I think that pitchers can control the quality of contact a lot more than we previously thought. So FIP isn't as important of a metric to me as it used to be. It's still more important than ERA, but it's not the be-all, end-all that it was as people started digging more into sabermetrics and digging more into the different ways of handicapping baseball. So instead, what I like to use is that I like to look at exit velocities. I like to look at barrel percentage. A barreled ball is a batted ball with an expected batting average of 500, an expected slugging percentage of 1.500. So essentially, barreled balls, by and large, are doubles, triples, and home runs. And the way that you figure that out is looking at launch angle and exit velocity. And StatCast, an arm of MLB Advanced Media, does all of that for you. Why do I use exit velocity? Why do I look at barrel percentage or hard hit percentage, which is percentage of batted balls with an exit velocity of 95 or more miles per hour? Why do I look at those? Because baseball is a game subject to a lot of variance. Batted balls get hit at fielders or they don't. As I just mentioned, singles get hit with men on base or they don't. What I'm trying to look at using exit velocity and barrel percentage and things like that, hard hit percentage, I'm trying to limit the variance as much as I can by looking at pitchers that are likely to allow the least amount of detrimental contact. Think about it. A barreled ball has an expected batting average of 500 and expected slugging percentage of 1.500 or higher. So guys that give up a lot of barreled balls are going to give up a lot of doubles, a lot of home runs. When you look at exit velocity specifically, The difference in batting average as you go down a mile per hour in average exit velocity is about 10 to 12 points. So I'm trying to find guys that limit hard contact against because they are most likely to limit the number of runs that they allow. So that's why I look at exit velocity and barrel percentage and hard hit percentage and some of those contact quality metrics because to me, it makes sense in my mind that if you're going to allow seven batted balls of 95 95 plus miles per hour to start, and your opponent is going to allow 10, more bad outcomes are going to happen more often than not when you allow 10 batted balls of 95 plus miles per hour as opposed to seven. So that's why I use these contact quality metrics a lot in my handicapping. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And maybe the derivative markets like team totals and stuff like that are a better way to approach this. But that is one of the major tenets of my handicapping is I look at contact quality against. I want to bet more often on guys that limit hard contact than guys that give up a lot of hard contact. And again, that makes sense. You think about reaction time for fielders. You think about distance that outfielders have to cover, stuff like that. The more time you have to get under a fly ball, the more likely you are to make that play. So that's why I look at a lot of these contact metrics in my handicapping. BABIP, batting average on balls in play, 
and left on base percentage, the percentage of runners stranded, those are two stats that never really stabilize. So they're subject to a lot of variance. BABIP will fluctuate. Left on base percentage will fluctuate. If you're a high strikeout pitcher with a low left on base percentage in the 60 or 65% range, I expect that to improve for you. Because when you strike out batters, you strand runners. When you pitch to contact, you run the risk of balls finding holes, balls landing in the grass. So guys with high strikeout rates should carry higher left on base percentages than the league average, which is around 72.5%. If I see high strikeout guys that are not stranding a high percentage of runners, those are guys I tend to want to play because I expect positive regression to the mean for that guy. It's the same thing with Babbitt. Guys that are allowing you know a 350 batting average on balls in play, that's pretty high. Guys that are allowing a 270 BABIP, that's pretty low. So at that point, I look at the reasons why. Is it a is it a command issue? Is it a defensive issue? Are you just pitching in front of a bad defense? Stuff like that. So those are two major factors that I look at from a handicapping standpoint as well. Now, this is one of those areas, like I mentioned at the top, that this is a small sample size, and that will hurt me as a sabermetrically inclined handicapper to where that positive or negative regression may never come because the sample size, the number of starts, just may not be big enough for those positive or negative developments to take place. So that's one of the things I'll have to try and find a balance with here for this season. And one other thing that I think will be critically important here is bullpen usage. Who is fresh? Who is available? Who can be used? If this team is going to have a lead... Will their primary relievers be available for them to close out that game? Because as I've talked about before, teams that have the lead after five innings win about 84% of the time on average year over year. This year, teams are going to have to win the games where they have leads. So I want to know if they have a lead, because I'm handicapping the starting pitchers, right? I expect that team to have a lead or I expect that team to be behind. Well, I need that game to finish out the way that it should 84% of the time. So I want to know which relievers are available, who's fresh, who's working three and four or four and six or four and five or five and seven, something like that. I want to know those things. So bullpen usage is something that I look at quite extensively. It doesn't always make it into the article, but it is something that I do factor into the equation quite often. Now my daily picks and tips article, it's written in the morning. And it's generally written before I either do the full Bang the Book radio broadcast or the betters box here. The shows may come out a little bit later. Um, But it is tough with the timing of the article because now you're going to have a largely touch-and-go season. You're going to have the COVID tests. You're going to have scratches. Guys that were maybe exposed to it that have to sit out for precautionary reasons. Stuff like that. You're going to have openers. You're going to have piggybacks. So... That's a little bit difficult that I'm going to have the article out early, but there's a lot of reason and a lot of incentive to consider waiting to lock in your plays. Maybe you do have to hope for the best if you play them early, but lineups may look a little bit different. Pitching changes are going to happen. And something regarding pitching changes that's different in the betting industry this year as opposed to previous years, most sports books are no longer listing the starting pitchers. What used to happen is that you would have to decide when you had your bet slip there if you wanted to lock in with the listed pitchers or if you wanted action. What action used to mean 
is that you wanted to bet the game no matter what. And what would happen is that you would get the price of the closing line. You wouldn't get the price that you bet it at. You would get the closing line if you selected action. If you selected the listed pitchers, then you would get the price that you bet it at. But if there was a pitching change, your bet would be voided. Now, sportsbooks are not even listing pitchers. It is action. But it's actioned at the price that you bet the game at. So instead of adjusting your line to whatever the closing number is, the books will give you action at whatever price you bet the game at. Now, of course, there's some risk involved in this because if you bet a game and, you know, all of a sudden the pitcher changes, it's a much worse pitcher on the mound, you're stuck at that number because you don't have listed pitchers available to you. On the flip side, you know, you're not going to have your bets voided if you got a pretty good price. Now, of course, what's a pretty good price may be dictated by who's actually starting. But that is a change in the business here for this year. So listed pitchers are no longer posted. You get that bet at the price you lock it in, irrespective of who starts that game. So this could work out in your favor. This may not work out in your favor. You know, you may bet a game at plus 180 with a fourth or fifth starter going. All of a sudden, they have a, a you know a negative test or something like that, and a team moves up a starter who's a better pitcher. All of a sudden, you've got that guy at plus 180 when the market is plus 140. That could happen. Of course, the opposite could also happen, where you bet a pitcher at plus 125, he gets scratched, they go with an opener, all of a sudden that line's plus 180. Well, you got plus 125. So that is something you want to factor into the equation here and make sure you check out the house rules at your specific sports book to see what they're going to do with pitching changes. Again, most of them are going to be action with no listed pitchers. You get the price you bet it at, but not all of them are going to wind up doing it that way. Like I said, my pick for Thursday here, Nationals over seven, or Yankees Nationals over seven and a half. Again, it's Cole Scherzer. They're dominant. They could be very good. But like I said, some extra carry at Nationals Park in the summertime. Command worse for pitchers early in the process. And we'll have to see what the baseball looks like, where I think a lot of people sort of expecting it to play a little bit juiced here to enhance the excitement and increase the interest level in this shortened Major League Baseball season. All right, I got five series I want to talk about here with a weekend preview. And like I said, this is how I'll finish out most editions of the betters box. That Yankees-National Series is the starting point here for this segment. You got Garrett Cole, Max Scherzer today, James Paxton, and to be determined for the Nationals on uh, on Saturday, they've got a rainout day in the uh, in the schedule for Friday. I imagine it'll be Steven Strasburg on Saturday. We'll have to wait and see. Opener for the Yankees on Sunday, probably Chad Green in that one. Probably Patrick Corbin for the Nationals. It'll be Corbin and Strasburg on Saturday and Sunday. Whoever doesn't pitch Saturday probably ends up pitching on Sunday. But this could be how it is for a little bit. Teams may be a little bit slow to announce their starting pitchers. Maybe there'll be some gamesmanship in there where they'll kind of wait as long as they possibly can. Obviously, you've got the universal DH this year in the National League. And we'll have to see what the quantifiable impact is of that. Again, you would think that offense would be up a little bit. There was only a difference last year between the AL and the NL teams of about 270 runs. I think it was 260, something like that. So the DH probably, you know, shrinks that gap a little bit. But again, the National League was relatively on pace 
with the American League last year. Teams in the AL, 4.88 runs per game. Teams in the NL, 4.78 runs per game. And that's with the pitcher hitting more often than not. So the National League may end up actually being the higher scoring of the two leagues here with the DH based on what we saw uh, in previous seasons. But again, that'll be a pretty important uh, pretty important discussion point for National League games now that they have the universal DH. Some teams also better equipped for that. The Nationals are pretty well equipped for that. Other teams may not be. So that'll be something you want to factor into your handicaps uh, with the National League teams. You know, the Yankees, great bullpen, as we know. It'll be interesting to see how the weekend goes because you get ramped up for this opener on Thursday night, and then you don't play on Friday. Then you come back and play Saturday and Sunday. I'll be curious to see how Saturday's game goes if there's a little bit of a hangover from that day off. Twins and White Sox. You got Jose Barrios and Lucas Giolito on Friday. Rich Hill gets the start for the Twins on Saturday against White Sox newcomer Dallas Keuchel. The Twins will go with Kenta Maeda on Sunday. The White Sox have not announced a starter as of yet. It'll either be probably Reynaldo Lopez or Dylan Cease would be my guess. The White Sox, that's the book, or that's the team with the most exposure in the World Series futures market for some of the books out in Vegas. I know CG Technology being one of them with the White Sox at 20 to 1. This is their first crack at the Twins here. And they do get three very different pitchers in Barrios, Hill, and Maeda. But this is a new-look lineup for the White Sox. They've added Yasmani Grandal. They've added Edwin Encarnacion. They've added Luis Robert. This is a new-look White Sox lineup that projects to hit for a ton of power. And if Tim Anderson and Yohan Moncada can carry the high bandwidth that they had from last season, this White Sox offense will be very, 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 very good. This White Sox pitching staff, though, is a big question. Beyond Giolito, who I think is a decent look for the Cy Young, by the way, if the White Sox achieve these expectations that people have put on them, Giolito is going to have to be a big part of it. So I saw him 16-1, to 20-1 to 1 range. Not a bad play for a Cy Young future. But what about Dallas Keuchel? You know, Dallas Keuchel pitched for the Braves last year. He was okay. A guy that is an extreme ground ball dude, The White Sox are not blessed defensively on the infield. They're not great. How does he fare with this White Sox team? And the back end of this rotation is not very good. I don't like the bullpen. So the White Sox are an offense first team. They may play a lot of slow pitch softball games, as I like to call them here for this season. They're going to play a lot of high scoring affairs. They're going to score a lot of runs. They'll probably give up a lot of runs as well. The one thing that could help is that Yasmani Grandal is an excellent pitch receiver. He is a great framer that will help this White Sox team in a very big way. Now, as I was kind of thinking about this series and kind of thinking about how things have gone for the lead-up to the season here, there aren't a lot of people talking about the Minnesota Twins. A lot of people in love with the White Sox. A lot of people like the Indians because 43% of their schedule comes against the Royals, Tigers, and, and Pirates. They've got Lindor. They've got Ramirez. They've got this elite starting rotation. People aren't talking about the Twins, man. They add Rich Hill. They add Kenta Maeda. They add Josh Donaldson. They've got power. They've got on base. They've got all kinds of ability with that lineup. They've got a pretty good bullpen, too. Nobody's talking about the Twins. They seem to be overlooked somehow. Even though they're the division favorite, even though they have the highest win total in the AL Central, 
they seem to be flying under the radar somehow. So I'm curious to see how this series plays out. And again, it's just three games on a 60. But I mean, it's a pretty big sample size, really, when you think about the fact that, you know, we're not playing 162 games this year. So I want to see how both of these teams come out right out of the shoot. The White Sox, again, you know, getting some higher expectations than they've seen over the last few years. Are they able to live up to them? Is this offense able to live up to them against a pretty good Twins pitching staff and three very unique starters that they will see in this series? The Brewers and the Cubs. We start with Brandon Woodruff and Kyle Hendricks on Friday. Corbin Burns, you Darvish on Saturday. Freddie Peralta and Tyler Chatwood, the expected starters on Sunday. Both of these teams have some pretty significant rotation concerns. Woodruff and Hendricks in the first game, you know, those guys are both pretty reliable at this point in time. We've got a lot more sample size for Hendricks to rely on, but Brandon Woodruff was very, very good last year in a lot of different ways. Corbin Burns has elite raw stuff. If you look under the hood at some of the StatCast metrics, the spin rates are excellent. The velocity is good. But last year, the command was just non-existent. I mean, he did not throw enough quality strikes, gave up a ton of home runs and hard contact. What changes this year? Are the Brewers able to work with him and get him over these 10 or 12 starts to figure things out a little bit? I don't know the answer to that question. What about you, Darvish? You, Darvish, a tale of two seasons last year. April and May were abhorrent. June through the rest of the year, outstanding. Phenomenal strikeout to walk ratio. Still allowed a lot of home runs, but instead of being multi-run homers like they were in the first two months, they were solo shots by not allowing a lot of base runners. What do we get from Darvish this year? I'm not sure about that. What do we get from Freddie Peralta, who's like 75, 80% fastball usage? How does that play back in the rotation? Tyler Chatwood, he couldn't find the home plate with a compass and a map last year. Lots of walks. What does he look like? These two teams have a lot of rotation questions here. The Cubs with questions because John Lester, another year older, command on the fritz. Jose Quintana, thumb injury. He sliced it open doing something. He's out for a couple more starts. The Brewers are going to have Burns and Adrian Hauser in the rotation. Hauser not commanding his slider well in his last tune-up yesterday. These two teams have a lot of pitching questions. The one thing that's different between the two is that the Brewers probably have the more stable bullpen. So does that play out here in what could be a very high-variance series? Chris Bryant's been banged up. He sat out yesterday with a back issue. Ryan Braun's been dinged. So both of these lineups kind of dealing with some things as well. An interesting fact-finding mission, I think, in this series for both of these teams. I don't know if there will be a whole lot of actionable matchups, but there will be a lot of fact-finding to go on in this series. The Angels and the A's will start with a four-game series here. Andrew Heaney, Frankie Montas in the first one on Friday. Dylan Bundy, Sean Manaya Saturday. Shohei Otani and Mike Fires on Sunday. Griffin Canning and Chris Bassett on Monday in the wraparound four-gamer. The first big takeaway here, Mike Fires pitching at home. Go check out his home road splits from last year. They were very, very substantial. He's a negative regression candidate in a lot of ways. What do we get in his first outing against this new-look Angels lineup? What do we get from Shohei Otani coming back? The Angels probably going with a six-man rotation to try and protect Otani, who's obviously coming back off of UCL trouble. Griffin Canning was hurt last year, so they're trying to protect their rotation a little bit. 
Dylan Bundy, his first start with the Angels. He's out of the AL East now, away from the Baltimore Orioles, who have not done a good job of developing pitchers. Does this work out well for him out in the AL West? I think it very well could. Also an injury scenario to keep an eye on here, Anthony Rendon. Out with an oblique, not in the opening day lineup on Friday. That's already been announced. How long do the Angels keep him out? We'll have to wait and see, but you got some pitchers that aren't great here in this series, but it's a big ballpark in Oakland. Do we get a lower scoring series with some higher totals here? I think that is a possibility. So maybe you look for some lower scoring games there between the Angels and the A's. Finally, last series I want to touch on here, Diamondbacks and Padres. Now, I like the Diamondbacks, and I've come around on the Padres here in this smaller sample size format. Why do I like these two teams? Well, a big reason why will be on display this weekend. Madison Bumgarner and Chris Paddock on Friday. Robbie Ray, Denilson Lamont on Saturday. Zach Gallen, Garrett Richards on Sunday. Stuff for days with all these guys. Bumgarner with the good slider. Paddock with the elite changeup. Robbie Ray with some new look mechanics. A lot of people very excited about those. Denilson Lamont's got the explosive fastball. Gallon's got everything. I love that kid. Garrett Richards, bowling ball sinker, good slider. There's a lot to like about all the starting pitchers going in this series here. The Padres have a big bullpen advantage, though, and maybe that shows itself in this series. The Padres may have the best bullpen in the National League overall. So they've got a big bullpen advantage, and as I said, I think bullpens are going to play such a monumental role this season with the starters kind of being protected, managers with a higher degree of aggression and urgency, not going a third time through the order. Bullpens will play a big role, and the Padres may have the best one in the National League, if not all of baseball. That is a distinct advantage that they have in this series. Now, the Diamondbacks are probably the best defensive team in baseball. So that's a distinct advantage that they have. So I'll be curious to see you know, what happens with the betting action in this series, how things play out. But these are all pitchers I'm very interested in and teams I'm very interested in as well. I'll be back on Monday after the weekend with a new edition of the Betters Box with actual results. Games to discuss, betting odds movement to discuss. Should be a lot of fun there on Monday. Make sure you're checking out the daily picks and tips article throughout the weekend as well. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And remember that you will never strike out when you're in the betters box.